Hello and welcome to another Facebook Live. Uh, I'm going to wait for a second or two, make sure you can hear me because sometimes the sound doesn't come through. Um, I'm just back from Belfast, Northern Ireland, where I spent a beautiful five weeks hanging out uh, with friends and just enjoying myself. Uh, I extended stay by like another 10 days because it was so nice to be home. I think, uh, you know, ideally my idea of paradise is, you know, four or five months in Belfast and then the rest of the time here in LA where I am at the moment. Uh, I'm in a slightly different environment than last time because I'm currently homeless. Um, I've moved out of my last place and I'm looking around to rent somewhere new. So a really good friend has uh, has lent me a room in her house, uh, this girl Jennifer, who's just bought a place in LA, but there is absolutely no furniture around, so um, it's very, very white walls. Um, before I talk about the subject of this Facebook, just to let you know that I'm uh, going to start getting back into work. Uh, I've got lots of exciting projects coming up, which I want to tell you about. I won't tell you about them all now, um, but I will be uh, uh, releasing some information about a movie that I'm trying to get made, and I want to get your involvement in that, so I'll talk about that probably in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm, also, um, I'm also going to be in Seattle, going to be doing stuff in LA, New York, uh, the Netherlands, and back in Ireland. So if you're from any of those places, uh, do come out and see me. In the next four months, I'll, I'll be doing all of those places. Um, but yeah, also say hi. I can see your comments. Um, oh, thank you, Graham. He says he liked uh, the talk I did at Christmas. Yes, I did. I was in the Netherlands and I was taking part in a TV program about the meaning of Christmas. And uh, I think if you want to see it, it's only three minutes of your life. And uh, you can go onto my Facebook that was amazing. Graham, did you see the space? It was like stunning. We were in this incredible building. Because um, uh, it's TV, there's an awful lot of waiting around, but it was an amazing uh, space. So let's see. Uh, what other people are saying hi. I'll just have a look at the comments. Hey, Layla, is that Layla? Hey, Mark. Brandon from Nashville. Uh, Maggie says you'll be in Seattle when I'm in LA. Maggie, come on, you've got to get back to Seattle. Um, okay, lots of people from lots of different places clicking in. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, I'm really keen to keep doing these Facebook Lives. I uh, really enjoy them. Um, I'm, I'll probably just you know go to about once a month. But if you do like my online stuff, most of you will know this by now, I'm doing an online seminar in a couple of weeks where we're going to go very in-depth. And so I encourage you to sign up. It's totally free. Uh, you can donate. And by the way, thank you so much for those of you who have donated. It means so much. To be honest, it stops me from having to get a real job and stops me from being permanently homeless. I hope my current homelessness is, is going to finish in a few weeks in a month. So it really helps. I really appreciate your help. The more you donate and support me, the more stuff I can do. But I'm not trying to bribe you. I'm committed to doing free products, whatever. So um, sign up for that. Uh, but today, I was just thinking um, this morning, I wanted to do a Facebook Live, what would I do it on? And I thought about inerrancy. And um, I thought I would, I would put a word in uh, about this subject. Now, 
Whenever I'm saying in defense of inerrancy, which is what the title of this video is, uh, I'm not meaning inerrancy the way that we often hear it. I mean, basically, whenever people come to the biblical text, they often take a position of either, you know, it's all true. Um, in other words, what it says reflects the nature of reality itself. It's a type of testimony or historical documentation about real events that have occurred. Uh, or people say, well, no, it's not that. I mean, it includes history, but it's also poetry, mythology, geography, ideology. It's, it's, it's a mix of all of that. And then, of course, there's like in between. Well, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Um, but I want to take a different approach um, and, and, and it might get help you understand a little bit about, uh, you know, how I approach the text and what I'm doing in my, my project in Pyrotheology and my books. And in order to understand that, I want you to think for a second about how an analyst uh, looks at a dream. So somebody comes in and they sit down or they lie down on the couch. And one of the things that happens in analysis is they're asked, you know, have you had any dreams? So the individual relays a dream. Now, interestingly, the analyst doesn't sit there and go, okay, right, you had a dream that, that you were at someone's house and you had a drink and you talked to three people that you know. Did that really happen? Right? They don't ask that. They don't ask, did it really happen? Now, they know that dreams take fragments of your subjective experience, right? But they're not interested in that. So they don't doubt it. Uh, or they, and they don't believe it. They don't go, okay, it's definitely happened. They bracket that question out. But they bracket that question out so that they can take the dream absolutely seriously and, and ask, what does it mean? What does this express about your fears and your desires and your struggles? So an, uh, an analyst is a type of an errantist. They're an inerrantist in the sense that they say, your dream is absolutely true, right? Your dream, we are going to take absolutely seriously. You have dreamt about snakes under the bed. We're going to take that absolutely seriously and we're going to ask why. Or you had a dream and in the dream you're waiting for a bus and you can see the bus, but it never gets to your stop and you're running late for work. But the whole dream, you're stuck there, not able to move, waiting for the bus that never comes. Now, the analyst could say, well, do you get a bus to work? Maybe they do. And they could say, OK, and is that a bus stop that you stand at on a regular basis? And maybe it is. But the analyst doesn't really care about that. The analyst knows that, yes, of course, your dreams latch on to fragments of your experience in your day. But maybe the dream is saying something about how much you hate work. <laughs> you don't want the bus to come. You're, go, you're getting the bus to work, but it never arrives. So it actually tells the person a desire they're not even aware of. Or they feel stuck in their life. They feel they're waiting there, waiting to move on. But the, that thing that will help them move on never arrives. Right? So whatever it is, the idea is this dream um, latches on to things in order to express something true about the individual. Now, in the same way... I think um, a biblical scholar can, can look at the text and ask the question, what is, does this tell us about the hopes and the desires and the form of life of those who were caught up in this event? 
So when you read the Gospels, you're asking yourself, what is this saying about this group of people? Why, what, what, not knowing what happened in terms of factual stuff, but saying that these individuals are experiencing a form of life. What is that form of life? Now that's a question that I'm interested in. That's actually, that's not really the question for a scholar. They're more interested in history, but it's a question for someone who's doing what we call phenomenology or something like that. Now, a good example of this, um, interestingly, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, I, I'm thinking about doing a C.S. Lewis event because he's a Belfast man. I grew up just around the corner from him and um, I spent a lot of my time back home in this uh, place that he spent his honeymoon with joy and spent a lot of his time. It's a place that backs onto the forest that reputedly is where he got the inspiration for the landscape of Narnia. It's a, it's a dreamlike beautiful place. So I've been thinking about bringing some people to that place and spending four days critically engaging with his work. Now, I'm not a big fan of some of his work, I should say that, but I'm very interested in him as, a, as an individual. So part of what I did is I read everything he wrote about Christianity. And one of the arguments uh, he has for uh, believing that the Bible is true, and by true he means the things happened uh, in actuality, is that, um, uh, well, he, he believes that, sorry. And of course, the critique that's made of that is, hold on a second, right? Virgin birth, son of God, water into wine, dying and rising again in three days. All of this exists before Christianity. You can find all of it in poetry, in mythology, in other religious stories. So does that not like kind of go against the idea that this stuff really happened? In the fact that basically there's loads of precedent for it uh, in the pre-Christian literature. But what C.S. Lewis does is he uses an old scholastic argument that says, you know, of course you're going to find that, right? Because the physical stuff that happened is so true at a deeper level than mere physicality that you're going to find expressions of it elsewhere. Right? So that's his argument. It's quite a simple argument, but it's, it's not a million miles away from what Sigmund Freud was talking about with dream analysis, where he says something subjective in you needs to be expressed. And so what will happen is you will take fragments of reality in order to express it. So perhaps, you know, the most basic example is you're really thirsty and you have a dream where you go downstairs, you take out orange juice from the fridge and you drink it. That is saying something about how you are thirsty. But the orange juice in the fridge and going down the stairs, they're contingent. They just happen to be because you live in a house where you have to go, go downstairs. You have a fridge and in the fridge you've got orange juice. Other things could have like uh, contributed to that dream. Your subjectivity could have kind of expressed itself differently. Or, you know, you really need to go to the bathroom and you're dreaming about, you know, going to the toilet. Um, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what toilet that you're going to in your dream. Uh, that's just a, f a fragment of, like, some memory in your, in your head that the dream is using to express your desire to go to the toilet. So in the same way, uh, there are things that are subjectively important to us and they get expressed through language and story or whatever. Now, a good example of this is the Titanic. So the Titanic, which was built in Belfast, I've got lots of Belfast references for this um, because I'm just home. The Titanic um, was 
was on its maiden voyage in April of 1912. Right? And as we know, it's going through the North Atlantic, it hits an iceberg, it sinks. Now, what's interesting is 14 years previously, uh, in 1898, a guy called uh, Morgan Robertson wrote a book called The Wreck of the Titan. Right? And in this book, uh, Morgan Robertson uh, describes a ship that is the same type of ship as the Titanic. Right? That's basically the same length, size of the Titanic and weight of the Titanic with roughly the same amount of people on the Titanic with a maximum capacity of 3,000, with around 2,500 people on it, on it. Both the fiction and the reality had too few lifeboats. Um, they both um, uh, sank in April. And there's a whole pile of other weird like similarities. If you saw these side by side and you didn't know what year this book had been written, you would say, oh, this guy's just totally plagiarized the Titanic. He's totally ripped it off, right? But it happened 14 years previously. And of course, some people are like, oh, the guy's clairvoyant or whatever. But he's just like, I just know about ships. It's just a coincidence. But the, the point is, the reason why I bring this up is just last week, I was thinking about why is it that the Titanic has such a hold in the cultural imagination of the West, sparking off movies and, um, and, and like a, you know, art and museums and collectors and all of this. Uh, and then, then I find out, actually through listening to the talk of Shizek, I find out about this, this book 14 years earlier. I was interested in that. I was thinking that, in a sense, the story of the Titanic, for whatever reason, captures us because it speaks of something, maybe of the human condition, maybe of futility, maybe of um, the idea that what we think is unsinkable and unstoppable eventually or very quickly degenerates. That was, by the way, another coincidence is the Titan was described as unsinkable and you know, so was the Titanic. For whatever reason, the guy, Morgan Robertson, who wrote this book, The Wreck of the Titan, wrote it because he felt that it captures something about human subjectivity, about life, about the existential situation. Now, he wrote that. And when something happened in reality that kind of fitted with it, right, um, it stuck with our imaginations because it wasn't just a ship sinking. Ships sink all the time. It wasn't just a factual thing. Somehow that factual event was wrought with meaning. It was saturated with symbolism that we we're probably not fully aware of. Now, in a similar way, I'm saying that we we don't know, you know, what is, you know, what happened or what didn't in the text. You know, most people say they think that there was somebody called Jesus who lived, um, and uh, you know, potentially was crucified. Right? Some people say even that is a was a story. So we don't know, but there are certain things that we we conjectures we can make. But the important thing is that something happened that subjectively impacted a group of people and continues to subjectively impact millions of people. We are caught up, you, probably most of you who are watching this, in some way have been caught up in that narrative. Existentially, uh, we're, in, we're grafted into it and existentially something of it comes out of us, right? And so the question is simply, let's take it absolutely seriously. Let's, let's kind of, you know, completely bracket out the question of 
historicity, all that, and take it as it is and ask ourselves, what does it mean? Why are we taken up by this? What is it expressing about our fears, our desires, our hopes and whatever? And of course, like my last book, The Divine Magician, was an attempt at giving an interpretation of the subjective experience that underlies this event, why it, it kind of connects. So long and short, what I'm kind of arguing for is a form of inerrancy. I'm kind of with the conservatives here. I'm going, yeah, whenever someone says like, do you believe the Bible and this, that, or forget those arguments, just go, yeah, I take it absolutely seriously. Like, absolutely, I don't, I, just like an analyst takes a dream absolutely seriously. Just like the analyst says, yep, you, you dreamt that, that you were late for the bus, you, the bus never arrived, you're, you're waiting there, you're gonna be late, and you know, and there's an alligator, you know, whatever. Yes, we take it absolutely seriously. And yes, we begin to decipher that. And we allow that to help us reflect on our, our state, or where we are and who we are. Now, my argument is there is a form of life that is reflected in the biblical tradition that is kind of liberating and interesting. It's connected with existentialism and psychoanalysis and other things. And that's what my work is attempting to draw out. But I wanted to just give you a flavour of the way that I will approach the text, the way I approach the story of Adam and Eve. You know, it's not, is it true or is it not? And of course, if you're interested in the subject, go back to my other Facebook Live where I talk about theology as subjective, objective and eventful. That it's a Trinitarian discourse, that there's a subjective element, an objective element and an eventful element. The eventful element is this transforms my life. And that, that will complement what I've just said here. So you can go back and do that. Okay, I will now have a little look, see if you've got any questions or comments or thoughts. Um, and, uh, and then I will let you get her about your day. Let's see. There's Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Um, okay. Lots of, I should have said at the beginning, you can ask questions. Of course, you know that. But... Um, you're all saying hi at the moment, let's see. The myth that is true is GK Chesterton put it. Yeah, Chesterton's got similar similar kinds of arguments. Like, it was what I, I was really interested in like a few of C.S. Lewis's arguments, very few of them, but I did like his his one about uh, mythology that 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 explodes into reality. Now, I actually think Freud's better on that. That's why I'm kind of, I, I don't hear me as defending C.S. Lewis completely on that. But uh, my interest is, I think that in the same way, a dream is a subjective experience that explodes into consciousness through using materials that are at its disposal. And so in a similar way, the reason why I think something like the Titanic um, is such an important thing for many people in the West is because strangely it it articulates something symbolic of our own condition in you know re reality is used in order to express it and and so in the same way I'm saying well just with a dream and just with the text you go okay we are bracketing out historical questions. Those are maybe interesting to some people, that's good. But if we want to actually get to the heart of what does this text mean? This is what, you know, this is what Kierkegaard is doing. This is, this is, uh, 
you know, trying to understand the existential significance. So I kind of like, I want to reclaim the word inerrancy, you know. In fact, my book, The Fidelity of Betrayal, goes into this a little bit. I wrote that book 10 years ago now, but it, it, um, it touches on this idea that actually inerrancy um, is like, okay, yeah, let's say it's all true. In fact, let's say it's all historically true. Let's say everything happened, right? Well, but then, you know, that, that's the least of it. If, if, if there was somebody rose from the dead in um, Guatemala, right? And there was a TV program on, on Netflix about it, right? I might watch it if it was midweek, but on Friday, Saturday night, I'm not gonna watch it. I'm not gonna care. You know, it's, it's not that interesting. Um, people, lots of people getting fed with a bit of bread and wine. If that really happened, that's kind of vaguely interesting for a pub talk, but I'm not gonna give my life to something as a result of that. It's something about that story that connects subjectively with a different type of world, a different way of understanding the political situation, a different way of imagining how the world can run. That's what happens. So it's not just that a lot of people got fed one day. That's boring. Who cares? People get fed every day and not fed every day and whatever. What's interesting about the story is, oh, it gives us an aroma of a type of world where everyone is cared for, everyone is looked after, where, where we share where we share a little and in sharing a little everyone is looked after or whatever however you interpret it that's that's kind of the story connects with something wider so again if you want to go back and listen to my facebook live on miracles i think i did a facebook live on miracles i i take this this very approach um let's see uh da -da -da. rich says tell us a joke <laughs> You gotta pay for that. If you're in LA, come to my Parables and Pints next week. And well, I'm doing one day after tomorrow, that's sold out, but I'm doing one in February. I'll tell you a few jokes then. Um, okay, Quinton is asking, how do your perspectives relate to Boltman? Um, oh, that's a, that would take me, that's a good question. Um, and, uh, you know, but probably, I should do a whole Facebook Live on that. Um, I, I quite like Boltman. He's one of the few theologians I read, but I'm not a huge fan. Um, but I do like his existential kind of approach. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so Rachel says, do you think Moses, uh, concerning Adam and Eve, is speaking out of an Egyptian context concerning creation? The idea of avoid chaos, creating order within chaos. Um, if I understand you right, Rachel, uh, I, I think absolutely Moses is definitely uh, speaking from within an Egyptian context. In fact, I argue in, in the book, The Fidelity of Betrayal, I try to put Moses in that context to try and show that, for example, whenever he says, uh, he asks God's name, what is your name? You got on, you know, that you've, in the context where gods had names and the, the, the context where Isis, the god Isis is, um, uh, or no, is it Ra? Sorry, Ra's name is stolen by Isis. And um, all of this kind of like, because the gods have secret names. And then God says, I am that I am, you know, I sh which is, can be translated, I shall be there how I shall be there. This can be seen as a critique of the, um, the Egyptian gods who have names. This god is unnameable, etc. Or, you know, you know, the creation story can be seen as a critique of Ra because you know, Ra is a sun god. And it, so it starts off saying, our god created the sun, 
you know, that's a that's a dig <laughs> at, at the Egyptians. So yeah, no, I think that's really important again is to read these stories and try to work out the subjective dimension. That's what I did on the Christmas story as well. I, I, I was making the point that that whenever the early disciples called Jesus the Son of God and said he was born of a virgin, we have to understand that Caesar Augustus or um, uh, was it Caesar Augustus well some of the Caesars were, were called sons of God and were born of virgins and so it was actually a political claim saying our God is better than your God your God is a God born in a, a mansion our God Christ is in a manger your God Caesar is a God of the oppressor our God Christ is a God of the oppressed and so you understand now that these are not twee sayings these are political declarations of a different type of world, a different type of power, a different type of kingdom. So yeah, I don't know, there you go. All right, listen, you're all now starting to get going and um, I feel, but I'm probably starting to bore some of you. So, okay, yes, Kirk says, you keep using the word inerrancy, but it seems to mean something other than what others think it means. Yeah, I think I mentioned this at the very beginning, but you might've just clicked in. The reason why I want to kind of use the word inerrancy is to, inerrancy describes, as you know, you take it absolutely serious, without error. You know, th this text is without error. It is the full truth. And that is how the analyst um, takes the dream of the analyzant. They take it as, in a sense, inerrant. It is the truth. Like, it is the truth of the subject. If we analyze and interpret the dream, it is the royal road to that person's fears, wishes, desires, and struggles. And so they don't go, okay, you know, you dreamt that you saw a bus. Have you seen a bus? Did you see a bus yesterday? Did you see a bus today? Or whatever it is, they, they don't, don't care. They know that probably fragments of your dream came from a movie you watched, something that happened during the day, a person you talked to. Yeah, they know that those are fragments of your memories are used. But what they're doing is they're saying, right, we're, we're saying it's without error. The dream is always without error, you know, which is a strange thing to say, but in a sense, it's your dream. And so it's communicating something. We may never know what it's communicating. We may never get to the bottom of it. But in a sense, you treat it as inerrant. But of course, that is different from how... Um, you know, it's used within uh, Biblicism, the Biblicism in, in the US, it's different. But, and I'm always doing that. Like I'm, I'm a, I use terms like original sin, universalism, but um, I wanna reclaim these words in an interesting way. So what, when I talk about inerrancy, I'm talking about in a sense going, let's take the text as describing a form of life. And then let's ask, let's decipher what that form of life is. Um, all right, um, Gabby, I'll do one more, one more and then I'll go. Gabby asks you, are you arguing for subjectivism? Okay, the big thing I'd say about that is, I'll say something about it, but I did a Facebook Live, and I forget what it's called, but it, it's, it, it's about, it'll have the term subjective, objective, and evental in it. And in that Facebook Live, I argue that no, I'm not arguing for subjectivism alone. I'm saying that theological language, it's like when someone, the example I use in that Facebook Live is some parent who says, my child is the most beautiful child in the world, right? That's not purely subjective. It's not purely objective. Um, it is actually a mix of subjective, objective, and evental. So if someone says, do you literally think your child's the most beautiful child in the world? The parent's kind of put in an awkward position. 
because they don't think no or yes. They're like, I think you misunderstand. In other words, my child is now the measure of all beauty to me. So my child is subjectively the child's most beautiful child in the world to me because they're my child, right? But there's an objective dimension, which is, but my child is a real thing, a real object in the world, a, a real individual. So there's something objective that that subjective latches onto. And then there's the eventual dimension, which is my child has changed my life. My child has transformed me, made me a better person, put my priorities in, in order. I used to just think about making money and, and now I care about something else, whatever it is. And what I'm saying is that, that these three are intertwined in a type of Trinitarian discourse. And so whenever someone says, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And, and they go, I mean, like objectively, I think the, the, the religious answer or the theological answer is, well, you can't, you can't isolate that objective statement from the subjective dimension or the eventual dimension. So that's, that's what I'm arguing for is a Trinitarian form of discourse that, that sees these as dialectically intertwined. So you can't pull them apart. So it's just the person who says, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? No, literally, it's like someone said, do you believe your kid is the most beautiful kid in the world? I mean, literally, um, where the answer is neither yes nor no. It's yes, but it's yes at a subjective, objective and eventual dimension simultaneously. Um, which means, of course, um, that it transforms the very way you speak, um, you know, or understand how you speak. But yeah, listen to that other one if, you, if you've got time. Don't worry if you don't. Um, all right. I will let you go. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I'll try and do another one um, <clears throat> maybe in a, in a week or two. And uh, uh, if you've got ideas for what you'd like me to talk about, um, please let me know. Uh, I'm also going to be starting to do a Q&A thing, um, hopefully in the next month which is going to be uh, through Patreon, where I'm going to maybe once a month create a space for a few of us where you can just ask any questions you have about anything that I'm doing. But I'll tell you about that uh, at a later date. Okay, thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate you taking your hard-earned time um, to listen to me talk. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.